The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. We're going to continue our study of 2 Thessalonians this morning. After Paul's salutation in verse 1 and 2, Verses 3 through 10 are one sentence in the Greek, and the theme of the sentence is the second coming. That's so important. Nearly half of 2 Thessalonians deals with problems and issues regarding the second coming of Christ. The Thessalonians were enduring persecution because of their faith. They're under a lot of pressure. They've been faithful. They're persevering. They're hanging in steadfast, but the persecution is intensifying. So in order to encourage them to continue to endure, Paul reminds them of the coming of Yeshua, which is their great hope. And so today we're going to look at at verse 9. And remember, verse 9 is part of this sentence. From verse 3 to 10, one sentence about the second coming. So this verse is connected with that about the second coming. But I'm going to do something a little bit different today. What we're going to do today is we're going to look at verse 9 from a theological perspective, and then next time we're going to come back and do it exegetically, all right, because I don't have time to do both, all right? So let's look at the verse. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. What doctrine do you think that churchianity draws from this verse? Okay, good. Good job, guys. Yes, the doctrine of hell. You get a commentary, you look at this verse, they're going to tell you hell. They're going to give you hell. That's what they're going to give you, okay? <clears throat> now, when I say that, when we say hell, or we read the word hell, we get all kinds of things come to our mind. Because here's the thing. What the word hell means, what the word hell stands for, is eternal conscious torment okay so when we think of it you know we think all kinds of things come to our mind you know people think of condemned souls and the devil a place of eternal fiery punishment you know where the wicked are screaming out for all eternity and a lot of people think this place is presided over by satan like he's running the place okay the oxford dictionary says this it's about hell a place regarded in various religions as a spiritual realm, a spiritual realm of evil and suffering, often traditionally depicted as a place of perpetual fire beneath the earth where the wicked are punished after death. What I thought was interesting, here: it's a spiritual place, but it's beneath the earth. Really? Do those two go together? It's beneath the earth, but it's spiritual. I like the fact that they said it's a spiritual place, so it's not a literal fire. Are, are literal people in this fire? Is this metaphor? What, what is this? But, you know, most people say it's beneath the earth. Now, <clears throat> it's really beyond my understanding how the church ever came up with this doctrine to start with. Other than maybe we can give a lot of credit to Dante Alighieri. I think he deserves a lot of credit for this doctrine. He wrote the Divine Comedy. 
with the idea that sinners are tortured in ways that represent ultimate justice for their sins. And being a Catholic, you know, this works great for the Catholics because, hey, you don't want to go there? Come on, you got to cough up some more money. Your relatives there cough up money, you shorten their time in purgatory. You know, just <clears throat> it really fits into their doctrine. All right. So I guess that's probably how it came about. Have you ever heard the expression cold as hell? Does that make any sense? That's kind of an oxymoron, right? Isn't hell a hot, burning fire? Not if you've read the Divine Comedy, all right? Because Dante taught the lowest level of hell, which is reserved for the worst sinners, is freezing cold. So if you don't like heat, be more bad, and you get to go to fr- you get to freeze, okay? That's where it came up. Cold as hell, all right? Now, in an article entitled, What is Hell?, published on June 20th, 2014, R.C. Sproul writes this, There is no biblical concept more grim or terror-invoking than the idea of hell. It is so unpopular with us that few would give credence to it at all, except it comes to us from the teaching of Christ Himself. Now, I want to challenge Sproul on that this morning, Okay? It comes to us. The teaching of hell comes to us from Christ Himself. I want to challenge that because I want to tell you this morning, Christ never taught on hell. He never taught on hell because there is no biblical concept of hell. Sproul says the teaching comes from Christ Himself. Others have said Christ taught more on hell than any other subject. Well, if the Bible doesn't teach on hell, how did he do that? So we're going to look at Christ's teaching this morning and see if in fact that's true that he taught on hell or even the concept was even there at all. But before we look at the teaching of Christ, let's go back to the Tanakh and start there and see what the Bible actually has to say about a place called hell. We'll look at the Tanakh, we'll look at the intertestamental literature, and then we'll come into the New Testament and see if we put this whole picture together and find out what the Bible says about this. Because here's a bottom line, believer. Everything we believe must come from the text. Okay? So when people tell you something, well, the Bible says you say, what's the address? Where does that verse live? And that will shut most people down right away, okay? Because they don't have a clue where it is. They just heard somebody say it, all right? But our beliefs have to come from the text. And we need to be open to allowing the text to shatter false ideas that we have. And you may be surprised to learn that the word hell, or the concept of hell, is not in the original language of the Bible. And if you see the word hell in your Bible, it's a bad translation. Period. The concept's not there. The word is not there. Nothing. It is totally fabricated. But isn't it interesting, doesn't most of the church exclusively believe there's a hell? Unbelievers believe this. Okay, everybody knows there's a hell and they talk about that place, all right? Now, if you have the King James Version Bible, it's time to upgrade, okay? But hell is mentioned in the King James Bible 54 times. That's a lot of times for something that's not there, right? And when you think of that, again, you you read the word hell, and automatically your brain goes to, 
eternal conscious torment, the damned, their suffering, brimstone, fire, eternal. The word hell is found 31 times in the King James translation of the Tanakh, where it's translated from the Hebrew word Sheol. Psalm 9.17, the wicked shall be turned into hell, and all the nations that forget God. This is a bad translation. This is a mistranslation from the Hebrew, because the word in the Hebrew here is Sheol. The ESV has this, the wicked shall return to Sheol. Oh, that's the actual Hebrew word. How nice they put that in there. And the nations that forget God. Now, do you get a different picture from these two translations? Hell and Sheol. You should, if you understand what Sheol is, and we've talked about it plenty, you should get a different picture. Now, the word return here is the Hebrew word shuv, and it means to turn back, to return. We could translate this, the wicked will return to the grave. Sheol is the Hebrew word for the place of the dead. But here's what's really important, believers. Hang on to this. Nowhere... Nowhere in Scripture is Sheol put forth as a fiery place of torment. Nowhere. Look up every verse on Sheol. You're not going to get that idea. All right? You never will get the traditional view of hell from the Tanakh. It's just not there. Well, what does, does the Old Testament say? Anything about the end of the wicked? Yeah, it says plenty. Let's look at some of the verses where it talks about it. Psalm 37, 20, but the wicked will perish. The enemies of Yahweh are like the glory of pastures. They vanish like smoke. They vanish away. Now, the word perish here is the Hebrew word avad. And Brown, Driver, and Briggs' definition is to perish, to vanish, to go away, be destroyed, be exterminated. So the wicked will be exterminated. And then the word vanish here is kalah. And BDB says it means to accomplish, to cease, to consume, to determine, to end, to fail, to finish. So do you see any hint of eternal conscious torment in this verse? The wicked, they're going to perish. Like smoke, they're going to just, they're gone. That's what it tells us. Psalm 37, 35, and 36. I've seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree, but he passed away. And behold... He was no more. Though I sought him, he could not be found. Notice that the wicked passed away and was no more. The words no more here are from the Hebrew ayin. It's from a primitive root meaning to be nothing or not exist. So the psalmist doesn't say they pass away and are tormented. They pass away and they are no more. Job 4, 8-9 through I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God, they perish. By the blast of His anger, they're consumed. So, they perish, they're consumed. This is the idea we get. Speaking of the wicked, Job says this in chapter 20, verse 7, He will perish forever like His own dung. Those who have seen Him will say, Where is He? Now, perish again is avad, which we saw has the idea of destroyed, extinction, gone. Interestingly here, the word dung here is gelel, and it means dung. (laughs) So, he's going to perish like his dung. So, is his dung going to be eternally, consciously tormented? No, 
It's just, it's gone, okay? He perishes forever. His dung's gone. He's gone, all right? Psalm 73, 27. Behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. Again, this is avad, to be exterminated. Now, the Tanakh says the wicked, they're like grass that quickly withers. They're like the green herb that fades. They're like refuse. They're like chaff. They're like dung. Psalm 58 says, Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime. You ever put salt on a snail? (laughs) It's quite interesting, okay? They just, uh, all right? Like the stillborn child who never was, all right? Listen, if we go through the whole Tanakh, there's at least 70, it's an interesting number, but at least 70 metaphors or similes of what the end of the wicked will be like. And what do these pictures tell us? Will the reality be like the picture? Because if the wicked are to be eternally tormented in flames, shouldn't the picture somehow reflect that? I mean, shouldn't some of the teaching in the Scripture see the wicked will be like meat on a skewer over an open flame? Or the the wicked will be like boiling in a cauldron of oil? We don't get that idea. We don't see eternal conscious torment even hinted at in any of these pictures. So why did the KJV translators translate Sheol as hell? It's because the wording of the KJV is more interpretation than translation. This should never, ever have happened. Like I said, you won't get this. Read every one of the references to Sheol. You won't get this picture. All right? You just won't get it. You won't find the word hell in the Tanakh of the New American Standard or the ESV. The idea of eternal conscious torment is not found in the Tanakh. And that brings me to this question. What new covenant truth is not found in the Tanakh? The only one that I know of is the mystery of Jew and Gentile being one body in Christ. The only thing new that I know in the New Testament. If the doctrine of eternal conscious torment is true, we should see it in the Tanakh. Unless people weren't really bad then, and so we didn't need it yet, okay? But there's no hint of it in the Tanakh. But it does show up in Second Temple Judaism, or what we call intertestamental literature. All references in the Apocrypha. Now, that's a Catholic Bible has the Apocrypha in it, these 13 extra books. Um, every reference in the Apocrypha is to the wicked perishing, except for one. In Judith 16:17, it talks about eternal torment. It's the only reference in the Apocrypha. All right? And that's the first picture we come up with in literature that's associated with the Bible. Now, the literature of the Pseudepigrapha is equally split between the teaching of the wicked perishing and being eternally tormented. So we see both there. Well, when we come to the Dead Sea Scrolls, they give a consistent picture of total destruction of the wicked, they perish. No idea of eternal conscious torment found in those documents. Now, the rabbinical literature, the Babylonian Talmud, Jerusalem Talmud, the Mishnah, it supports both views, that of the wicked perishing and that of eternal torment. So there wasn't a single Jewish view. There's no single Jewish view on anything, okay? So when the people say, well, the rabbis taught this, which rabbis? Because it's just like today saying, well, Christians teach this. And you're like, Christians teach everything, you know? 
What rabbis at what period of time? All right, so what does the New Testament tell us about hell? In the King James Version of the New Testament, the word hell is found 23 times. It's translated from the word Hades, and Hades is just the Greek equivalent of Sheol, the place of the dead. We see that translated 10 times from Hades. It's translated from the Greek word Tartaro once, and 12 times from Gaiana. Now, Gaiana is used 12 times in the New Testament, 11 of them are in the Gospels, one in James, and James simply says the tongue is set on fire by Gaiana. Now, as Sproul said, the idea of hell comes to us from the teaching of Christ Himself. So let's look at Christ's teaching and see if He's teaching something about eternal conscious torment. All right? Let's start in Matthew 5, first time we come across this word hell, 29 through 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. So the whole body here is just taken and thrown into hell. Keep that in mind. All right, it's not your spirit. Your whole body's going there, all right? If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. This is the first use of hell in the ESV translation. And again, this is a bad translation because it says hell. All right? should never say that. So what is he saying here? Is the Lord saying, if you don't deal with your sin, you're going to go to hell? Is that what he's saying? Well, the word translated hell in this verse is, again, from the Greek word geana. And this word geana is used 11 times in the Gospels. It is always used by Yeshua. That's really important. It's only in the Gospels. Doesn't that one time in James? It's only used by Yeshua. All right? Gaiana. That's the word here. That's the Greek pronunciation anyway. People will pronounce this all kinds of ways, but you're stuck with mine for now. All right? So who's Yeshua speaking these words to? Who's He talking to here? Well, if you back up to 5, 1, and 2... It tells us he's speaking to the disciples. But if you go to 7, 28, and 29, it tells us the crowd was astonished at his teaching. So as Yeshua is teaching his disciples, the crowd is listening in. So who is he speaking to? He's speaking to Israelites, okay, to Jewish people. What did they know about Gaiana? Does that matter? Does it matter how do we even bother with what they thought about it? Well, absolutely. I mean, I know you're all familiar with audience relevance. As we read the Bible, we have to keep in mind that hermeneutical principle, audience relevance. You know, this is so basic, but majority of people don't, are clueless about this. What we want to try to figure out is what did the original audience, what did the people who this was written to, how did they understand it? Because it's written to them. What it means to you doesn't really even matter. What did it mean to them? And the concern of the evangelical interpreters to understand the grammar of a passage in light of the historical circumstances and in context of its original audience. So what did Yeshua's audience think when they heard the word Gehenna? The common view today, if you ask people what is Gehenna, they're going to say it's what? It's the garbage dump of Jerusalem. 
Okay, that's a common view, all right? That outside Jerusalem, they had a garbage dump in the Valley of Gaina, and so they just kind of threw everything there. All the trash, all the refuge, all the dung from the city was dumped there. This is a place where the fires just kept burning all the time, day and night. And so that's what they're talking about. The only problem with that view is that there's no evidence for it. That's the only problem. It could be a small problem, right? No evidence. Doesn't mean it wasn't there. There's just no evidence for it, all right? In fact, there's no evidence at all that Gaina referred to a perpetual burning garbage dump. So, you know... Don't put that in your thinking too strong there. There are no literary sources. There is no archaeological data from the intertestamental or rabbinic periods to suggest that Gehenna was Jerusalem's burning garbage dump. There's no mention of Gehenna being a garbage dump in the writings that we have from the church fathers, Christian and Jewish writers, or even from secular writers. And W.D. Davies and D.C. Allison, in their excellent commentary on Matthew, they note this and they say the lack of evidence, the lack of ancient evidence for this is there, but they don't entirely reject the notion. Okay, so there's no evidence, but yeah, maybe it happened. Well, yeah, maybe. Maybe there's little green men on Mars that's made out of cheese too, but you know, we can't just make stuff up like that, I think. I think the fact that in 2 Kings 23.10 says that Josiah defiled Topheth, that gives us the idea that he turned Topheth into a garbage dump. But maybe we think that because it's already planted in our heads. See, we have this concept of hell. Everybody's heard of hell. All right? And so then we start reading the Bible and we see the word there. And so we know what it is. Well, first of all, the word shouldn't be there. That, you know, but you already have an idea, and so you go there with that. So, in fact, Gehenna was not Jerusalem's garbage dump. Where'd the idea come from? Well, it seems that the earliest mention of this theory comes from a rabbi named David Kimmy, who wrote a commentary on Psalm 27 in the 13th century. Okay? He remarked this. He says, Gehenna is a repugnant place into which filth and cadavers are thrown and in which fires perpetually burn in order to consume the filth and bones, on which account, by analogy, the judgment of the wicked is called Gehenna. So this very popular idea seems to have originated in the Jewish circles in the Middle Ages. So it's not likely that Gehenna was a trash dump for Jerusalem. I mean, this is a long time later they're coming up with this idea. So what then did Yeshua mean by the fires of Gehenna. Well, let's go back to the Tanakh and see if we can figure out where this whole thing starts. Jeremiah talks about Jeremiah 7, 31 and 32. And they have built the high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to, bear, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it come into my mind. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when it will no more be called Topheth, or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. For they will bury in Topheth, because there is no room elsewhere. Alright, so they're worshipping Moloch by burning their sons and daughters in the fire. And so God says this Topheth is going to be called the valley of slaughter. Now Isaiah had already spoken of Topheth as a fiery destiny 
of the enemy of God. In Isaiah 30, 33, he says, For Topheth has long been ready. Indeed, it has been prepared for the king. He has made it deep and large, a pyre of fire with plenty of wood. The breath of Yahweh, like a torrent of brimstone, sets it on fire. All right. Now, the ESV here says, for a burning place has been prepared. But most translations have Topheth in there. So, in the Tanakh, the Valley of Hinnom was associated with the destiny of the wicked, and it was a place of fiery torment. Now, Edward Robinson, who was a preeminent explorer of the Holy Land beginning in 1838, he wrote this. He says, In these gardens, lying partly within the mouth of Hinnom and partly in the valley of Jehoshaphat and irrigated by the waters of Siloam, Jerome assigns the place of Topheth, where the Jews practiced the horrid rites of Baal and Moloch, burning their children in the fire to these gods. Okay? And burned their sons and their daughters in the fire. It was probably an allusion to the detested and abominable fire that later Jews applied the name of this valley, Geana, to, to denote the place of future punishment or the fires of hell. At least there is no evidence of any other fires having been kept up in the valley, as has sometimes been supposed. So he's saying there's, just, there's no evidence of this, okay? These fires, this garbage dump. So the Valley of Hinnom was the sin of human sacrifice, they're burning in worship to Moloch. They're burning their children to Baal, which accounts for the prophecy of Jeremiah that it would be called the Valley of Slaughter under the judgment of God. Now, this combination of abominable fires and divine judgment led to the association of the valley with a place of perpetual fiery judgment. So, Gaena was a reference to the Valley of Hinnom and to the fiery judgment of God. Gaena was a place that had become identified in the people's minds as the symbol of national judgment. And that's so important that you get that. When you see the word Gaena, that's what it's referring to. National judgment. That's what they talked about in the Tanakh. God is going to judge this. That was the word. So Gaena is not a reference to eternal conscious torment. It's reference to a national judgment. And when you see it in the New Testament, it's specifically a reference to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, which was a fiery destruction. It was a national judgment. So Gaena has nothing to do with eternal conscious torment. But most Christians believe there's a place of fiery torment called hell. But there's no Bible verses about it. They think that's going to be the ultimate faith of the wicked. But again, Gaena is a reference to national judgment. That's the background of that word. That's what his disciples would have thought of when they hear this. So he's saying, your whole body is going to be tossed into Gaena. They're thinking, national judgment. So Matthew 5, when he says, says that, Gaena, they knew what he was talking about. The Jews who did not trust in Christ as their Messiah. They're going to end up with their bodies thrown into Gaena at the fiery destruction of Jerusalem. So, people, hell is not a translation of Gaena. It's a theologically loaded substitution. Okay? 
They just took a word that has nothing to do with anything and just stuck it in there. Let's put hell in here. And let's make up a concept to go with it. Gehenna is a literal judgment. And the only people, this is important, the only people ever threatened with Gehenna were the Judean Jews of Yeshua's generation. Because it referred to a local judgment. Now in a a parallel text, Yeshua says this. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands going to hell to the unquenchable fire. See, they say, well, see, that hell, is that's what it is. It's unquenchable fire. Well, the word unquenchable here is from the Greek word asbestos. Familiar with that? <laughs> this word is only used three times in ESV. It's once here, once in Matthew 3.12. We'll look at that in a minute. And in Luke 3.17, where John the Baptist said Yeshua would baptize with unquenchable fire. Unquenchable fire is fire that is not stoppable. It is fiery destruction brought about by God. God promised such a national judgment on Judah. If we go all the way back to Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 47. Say to the forest of the Negev, Hear the word of Yahweh. Thus says the Lord Yahweh, Behold, I will kindle a fire in you, and it shall devour every green tree in you and every dry tree. The blazing flame shall not be quenched. And the faces from the south to the north shall be scorched by it. All flesh shall see that I, Yahweh, have kindled it. It shall not be quenched. Now, Ezekiel is giving a prediction here. And this prediction was fulfilled. Babylon fulfilled these words in the destruction of Jerusalem in the year 586 B.C. The fire was not quenched. In other words, the destruction was unstoppable. But listen, Jerusalem didn't burn unendingly from 586 B.C. on. It burned until the judgment was finished. Accomplished what it needed to, and it stopped. So when Yeshua spoke of unquenchable fire in the text, He used language that His Jewish listeners would associate with the national judgment that God had brought on the nations in the Old Covenant. In fact, unlike us, they'd never heard such language used any other way. They never had this concept of hell. Mark 9, 47, 48. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. I see people say, oh, this garbage dump out there, there's worms. In, well, how are the worms in the fire? I don't get that, okay? But there's worms out there, and they're not dying, and the fire's going, and these are fireproof worms. These are asbestos worms, okay? <clears throat> so here he says, Gehenna is a place where the worms die not. Where's that come from? Tanakh, okay? That's where all this comes from, because that's where they got their information from. So it comes from Isaiah 66, 24. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die, and their fire shall not be quenched. And they shall be in abhorrence to all flesh. This verse is talking about God's destruction of Jerusalem in the generation when Yeshua was crucified. That's what Isaiah 66 is talking about. 
And so when Yeshua spoke about their worm that doesn't die and the fire is not quenched, the disciples would have been familiar again. He's talking about national judgment. That's a fiery, burning judgment. So the fire that's not quenched is not talking about an eternal fire, but a fire that can't be put out until it accomplishes what it's set out to do. Amos 5, 5, and 6 says, But do not seek Bethel, and do not enter into Gilgal or cross over to Beersheba, for Gilgal shall surely go to exile, and Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek Yahweh and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph, and it devour with none to quench it. Again, this fire is breaking out in judgment. No one's going to quench it. It is also used of Babylon's burning of Jerusalem in Jeremiah 21, 10-14. For I've set my face against this city for harm and not for good, declares Yahweh. It shall be given into the hands of the king of Babylon. And he shall burn it with fire. He's letting you know. Nebuchadnezzar's going to come. He's going to destroy this city. And to the house of the king of Judah say... Hear the word of Yahweh, O house of David. Thus says Yahweh, execute justice in the morning and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed. Lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it. Because of your evil deeds, behold, I'm against you, O inhabitant of the valley, O rock of the plain, declares Yahweh. You who say, who shall come down against us? Or who shall enter our habitations? I will punish you according to the fruit of your deeds, declares Yahweh. I will kindle a fire in her forest, and it shall devour all that is around her. Now, we know that Israel did not heed this warning of Jeremiah. And as a result, Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed. They were burned to the ground by Nebuchadnezzar. Now, is Jerusalem burning today? No, obviously not. But an unquenchable fire clearly doesn't burn forever. So what does the phrase mean? A fire that can't be quenched burns until its divine purpose has been accomplished, and then it goes out. Once the city was destroyed, the fire went out. Man can't extinguish the fire. Man can't quench it. But it only goes out when it's accomplished the Lord's purposes. So Gehenna was a place that had become identified in people's minds as national judgment. It's not talking about eternal damnation. It was a symbol of national judgment, and they knew that. Okay? Matthew 10, 28. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Again, when you see that, you know it's a bad translation. Now, Matthew didn't use the word punishment, torment, or eternal. He said destroy, which means to annihilate. Now, Yeshua was speaking here to Jews that were living under the law of Moses. And throughout his ministry, he had made continual reference to the judgment, the wrath of God that was coming upon them. The unfaithful Jews, those who rejected Christ, would be destroyed, while the faithful remnant will be spared. And Yeshua didn't say here, fear him who after he has killed your body will punish your conscious soul forever. The Greek word used here for soul is suke. Suke means life. So as the disciples went out, they're not to fear death at the hands of the unbelieving brethren because they're going to be persecuted. Don't fear death because he said all they can do is kill the body. 
Don't worry about that. He says, fear God who could permanently extinguish the life force, suke, by denying the resurrection unto life eternal. You could get thrown into Gehenna, Gehenna, and the body and the spirit be destroyed because you had not trusted the Messiah. In Matthew 23, Yeshua says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! That doesn't sound very nice, does it? Calling them people hypocrites. He says, you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. So here the judgment of Gehenna, the national judgment of Israel, is given a time to when it's going to happen. Because he's in Matthew 23 here, he says, you're going you're to make them a child of national judgment just like you. And then in verse 36, he says this, truly, truly, I say to you, all these things, stuff he just talked about, them making a, a child of Gehenna, will come upon this generation. The judgment of Gehenna was to happen to the generation to which Christ preached. Very, very important. Now, this is a good place to make a correction. All right? In my message that I did several weeks ago called Relief at the Revelation, I was dealing with 2 Thessalonians 1, 6-7. It was on March 12, 2023. I greatly misrepresented Hank Hanegraaff's position on this generation. Okay? Not on purpose. I said in his book, The Apocalypse Code, Hank Hanegraaff writes, and I gave a couple of lengthy quotes that I thought were from Hank Hanegraaff. They weren't. The problem was, I didn't get these quotes from Hank Hanegraaff's book. I got them from a paper called Cracking the Code of Preterism, a review of Hank Hanegraaff's apocalyptic code. And in the thing, he says he's quoting Hanegraaff, but there's things where he's just going off on his own, and I don't know who's what. Okay, so I, like, I thought Hanegraaff said that. All right, This paper was written by Ryan Habena. And so I, when I thought I was quoting Hanegraaff, I was quoting Robbie Habena. And I apologize because it was a gross misrepresentation of what Hanegraaff actually teaches. Here's what Hank actually says in his book, The Apocalypse Code. And I got this from The Apocalypse Code. <laughs> Good. Primary source, okay? On page 77. Hanegraaff says, Allow me to state the obvious. Our Lord is not grammatically challenged, in the least. Had He wanted to draw the attention of His disciples to a generation 1,900 years hence, He would not have confused them with the adjective, this. I agree. This generation. That's what He says, right? As Dr. Kenneth Gentry has aptly noted, this generation, in the context of the Olivet Discourse, is a non-apocalyptic, non-poetic, unambiguous, didactic assertion. Amen. That's so true. Thus, there is no mysterious, esocentric meaning locked up in the grammar. When Jesus said, when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, Matthew 24, 15, his disciples did not for a moment think he was referencing a far future generation. As noted, this generation appears with surprising regularity in the Gospels, and it always 
applies to Jesus' contemporaries. In Matthew 11, Jesus asked, To what can I compare this generation? Here, as in every other usage of this phrase, the generation in view is the very generation that rejected the incarnate Christ who performed miracles in their midst. Amen. I agree completely with that. And I'd like to say thanks to Matt for pointing this out to me. Matt wrote me and said, hey, you said, Hanegraaff said that. That's not, I got the book, I read the book, I've read the book a couple times. That's not what he says. And so he sent me some of the quotes, he sent me pages from the book, and I'm like, okay, gross misrepresentation. I apologize, because like that was really bad, because that other guy, Rabina, he was saying some crazy stuff about generation. All right. So I don't know, Jeff, can we somehow tag the last video and point him to this one or something? Yeah, highlight my error. I like. <laughs> Thank you. That's what friends are for, okay? I would like to highlight. I would like to highlight your error. Well, that that error needs to be highlighted, okay? That was just that. Yeah, there. Yeah, we we needed we needed noted somehow so people can can realize because that was like I said that was bad. Here here Hanegraaff's totally agreeing with me and I'm. Uh, <laughs> All right, back to the study. All right, right, what we have seen is that Yeshua threatened the Jews in Jerusalem that if they rejected him, they're headed for Gehenna. They'd suffer a national judgment against Jerusalem. Okay, the word hell, as we said, is a very bad translation. It's not really a translation at all of Gehenna. Hell gives us this this picture of eternal conscious torment in the afterlife. Gehenna just speaks of a national judgment. Yes, a burning, torturous judgment. But what does the New Testament say about the end of the wicked? Okay, so let's Gehenna doesn't refer to eternal conscious torment, doesn't refer to the afterlife. What's the New Testament say about the afterlife? Well, the teaching of the apostles was based on Moses and the prophets, Therefore, they reflect the truth that we find in the Tanakh. None of the King James Version's use of hell have anything to do with eternal place of torment. As I said earlier, the word hell should not be in your Bible. The New American Standard has the word hell 13 times in the New Testament. ESV has it 14 times in the New Testament. And Young's literal translation has it zip, none, zero, it's not used. Maybe that's why it's called literal translation. He doesn't use things that aren't there, okay? He doesn't make stuff up and put it there, all right? So what's the Bible say? What's the New Testament tell us about hell? Nothing. Nothing. The concept is not there. The word is not there. Nothing's there. Totally made up. So if the word's not there, the concept's not there, you know, somebody just came up with this stuff. All right. Look at Matthew 3, 11 and 12. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, this is John the Baptist talking, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. This is talking, the baptism of the Holy Spirit was, was Pentecost. The baptism of fire was Holocaust, the destruction of Jerusalem. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear the threshing floor and gather the wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn up with unquenchable fire. 
Now, what is John talking about here? People will say, well, this is a reference to hell. You're going to get burned up with fire. No, he's talking about the fiery destruction of Jerusalem. His warning is religious leaders in Israel. The fact that the axe is already laid to the root of the trees, old covenant people, indicates the nearness. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, John the Baptist comes on the scene as a prophet of Yahweh after 400 years of silence. 400 years, no prophets, no word from God. The Tanakh closes with the book of Malachi. And in the book of Malachi is one long, terrible impeachment of the nation Israel. Malachi is the prophet of doom. Coming judgment is the burden of the word of the Lord to Malachi. And in 3.5 he says, Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I'll be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, and the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says Yahweh of hosts. Judgment, 4.1 says, For behold, the day is coming burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble, The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says Yahweh of hosts, so that it will leave neither root nor branch. So they're going to be burnt like an oven. It's going to be set ablaze. This sounds like hell. No, it doesn't. The evildoer, he says, is chaff. This reference to burning like an oven is, again, speaking of national judgment. This verse points to an approaching crisis in the history of the nation when Yahweh is going to inflict judgment upon His rebellious people. The day was coming, and He said the day shall burn like an oven. This period is more precisely defined as the great and awesome day of the Lord in Malachi. Behold, I'll send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of Yahweh comes. Now that this day refers to a certain period and a specific event is really clear. Yeshua tells us that the predicted Elijah was to come before the great and terrible day of the Lord. It was, in fact, John the Baptist. That's who he's talking about. We see that in Matthew eleven fourteen. If you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who's to come. He's referring to John the Baptist. All right? He fulfilled this prophecy. Now, this enables us to determine that the time of the event, the great and awesome day of the Lord, is during the time of John the Baptist. That's the period in which he's alive. It means it's coming in that time soon. Now, it seems clear that the allusion to the judgment of the Jewish nation in AD 70, when their city and temple were destroyed, and the entire fabric of Judaism was dissolved, that's what he's referring to here. So Matthew 3, 11 and 12 is not talking about hell. No, no issue with hell there at all. Now, how about one of the most famous, most well-known verses in the Bible? Right? You see this plastered everywhere, Okay? For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not suffer eternal conscious torment forever, but have eternal life. People, the clear contrast here is perish and eternal life. My phone is on silent, and yet it just keeps going off. I got the volume all the way down. I got it on Do Not Disturb. Do Not Disturb! That wasn't the Lord, I checked. <laughs> I would have responded to that one, okay? <laughs> the Greek word perish is referring to death. 
Okay? They're going to, boom, they're gone. If they don't believe in Christ, they're just going to die. But guess what? Those who do believe, they have eternal life. Okay? Paul taught this same thing. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Yeshua our Lord. So note the wages for sin is death. It's not eternal punishment. It's not torment in some place called hell. In the context of Paul's dissertation here, in his letter to Rome, the death refers to the sentence given to Adam, who was guilty of the sin. So Paul's message was that a life in Adam would result in the death, while a life of faith in Christ brings everlasting life. Again, the contrast is death and eternal life. No eternal torture, no or eternal life. That's it. Eternal torture, eternal life. You got that. That's the only two options. Okay? Now, the Greek scholar and New Testament translator, R.F. Weymouth, I'm sure many of you heard of Weymouth, okay? He was a translator. He wrote this, and I think this is significant. Weymouth says, My mind fails to conceive a grosser misinterpretation of language that when the five or six strongest words which the Greek tongue possesses, signifying destroy or destruction, are explained to mean maintaining an everlasting but wretched existence. That's, you know, it's a gross misuse of the language. And he ends, I couldn't fit it all on one page, I wanted to, but he ends saying this, to translate black as white is nothing to this. He's saying the Greek is so clear, it means destroy, means done, finished, but yet people want to make it mean something else. How about Matthew 25, 46? And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. All right, you got eternal punishment, eternal life. We have a comparison here, all right? The word eternal is the same in both cases. Eternal is from the Greek, ionios, which comes from ion, means existing at all times, perpetual, pertaining to an unlimited duration of time. So people want to argue here, well, if the righteous get eternal life, the wicked get eternal punishment. That's true. That's what it says. What's it mean? What's it mean by eternal punishment? As we've seen from other scriptures, the punishment is death. That's the punishment. So what the wicked get is eternal death. It's not talking about the result of the action and not the action itself. Okay, the punishment is death and death is eternal. Once you die... It's forever. It's not talking about being tortured forever. The punishment is death. You're done. The act of perishing will come to an end, but the consequence will last for eternity. You perish, and it's forever. Okay? You get eternal life or eternal death. That's it. That's the only options. And you can't take punishment and say, oh, they're going to just suffer forever. No, that's really adding to that. Okay? In 1 Corinthians 1.18, Paul says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. So you got the saved and you got the lost. And here those perishing are the non-elect because he says in verse 24, But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. So the contrast is those who are perishing and those who are being saved. The Bible teaches that the reward of believers is everlasting life. 
While the punishment of the wicked is just what the scriptures state, death, which is the opposite of life. Here's where one of the problems comes in. Greek influence on the biblical concepts and on the scriptures. See, the Greeks taught that man lives forever. The Bible doesn't teach that, okay? Who gets eternal life? Believers. So what about non-believers? What do they get? They don't get eternal life. Well, did they get eternal life just somewhere else? No, they don't have eternal life. And that's it. When we put our faith in Christ, we are given eternal life. So now, guess what? We get to live forever. The unbelievers don't. They don't believe in Christ, and when they die, they're gone. It's over. It's the opposite of life. The wicked will never escape death, so it's eternal. It's an eternal punishment. In Jude 1.7, he says, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulge in sexual immorality and pursue unnatural desire, they serve as an example undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. All right, notice that the punishment here is eternal fire. Is this a reference to eternal conscious torment? Well, who or what is that serve as an example of undergoing the punishment? Who, what's the, who's the example? It's Sodom and Gomorrah, right? They're the example. All right, they, they is the punishment of eternal fire. Are the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah still burning? No, but the fire is said to be eternal. Because the destruction is eternal, it's permanent, it's never-ending, boom, he wiped them out and they're gone. Doesn't mean the fires just keep on going. They accomplished their purpose, they burned up those cities. Man, it should scare us to read that verse, okay? Why hasn't God wiped us out? You know, He judged them for what? Sexual immorality. Oh my word. We're, we're about as far... You know, last week, a transgender person well, i don't know what which way they're going i think they were a girl and trying to be a boy thought they were a boy went into a christian school and killed people killed three children killed three adults and the biden administration says we have to protect the transgender community nothing about the children that were killed nothing about any of that we have to look out for these people we have to protect them i mean it's just sick the more Whacked out you can be, the more sinful, the more perverted you can be, the more you're upheld in our society as something special. I saw a a meme on the internet. It said, where transgender people used to use the bathroom. And it had a picture of an insane asylum. (laughs) It used to be called insanity. still is insanity, but they call it something else now. Now they make you part of the Biden administration. All right. How did we get there? All right. Let's go to Revelation 14. Oh, sexual sin. Yeah, sexual sin. That's the key. All right. All right. Look at this this in Revelation. All right. He also will drink the wine of God's wrath. All right. Before we start, Revelation. Verse 1, verse 3. The time is at hand. The time is short. Get to Revelation 20, 22. Five times. Shortly, quickly, soon, about to be. So Revelation is bracketed in the very beginning and in the very end with time statements and everything in the middle is soon to happen. Not some things that, well, he'll save this part for later. It's all soon to happen, okay? 
He also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke, all right, here we go, tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day and night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Now, first glance, this passage seems to fit the traditional idea of a, a sulfurous, hellfire, merciless, eternal burning forever. But notice the setting for the passage. From the context, we see that the events described occur in Jerusalem amid the earth-shaking events and disasters occurring immediately or at Christ's return, not in hell, not in the afterlife. This is the judgment of Jerusalem. That's the thing what Revelation's all about, the judgment on Jerusalem. This warning describes the punishment that's going to happen to Jerusalem's inhabitants, those who worship the beast in his image and receive the mark in his name. It's another passage, again, speaking of the destruction of Jerusalem. That's who's going to experience this. All right, what about the lake of fire? What about the lake of fire? Revelation 20, 14 and 15. That death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Now, Revelation, the end of Revelation 19 says the beast and the false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire. Revelation 20.10 says the devil is thrown into the lake of fire. And now we get here and it says death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. And he said this is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he's thrown into the lake of fire. All right. So what I want you to notice here is the lake of fire is the second death. The first death is to die physically. To die a second death is to die to life to come, to spend eternity separated from God's presence. Now, I believe that the lake of fire is a sign or a symbol of the fiery judgment that was about to take place in Jerusalem. I think it's a sign or symbol of Gehenna. It symbolizes the total and complete destruction of God's enemies. And if you're familiar with fire, something goes into fire, what comes out? Smoke and ashes, okay? Gone. Burn up. And I think that's the picture of the lake of fire. Thrown in there and gone. Now, in the Targum Isaiah, Targum or Aramaic translations of Scripture, in the Targum Isaiah, we see Gehenna and the second death connected. Just as we see the lake of fire and the second death connected here. So here he talks about death in Hades, lake of fire, second death. Now watch what the Targum Isaiah says. Their punishment shall be in Gehenna, where the, excuse me, the fire burns all day. Behold, it is written before me, I will not give them respite during life, but will render them the punishment of their transgressions and will deliver their body to the second death. So he connects Gehenna with second death. Revelation connects lake of fire with second death. I think they're talking about the same thing. The lake of fire is Gehenna. It's referring to national judgment. And at that time, 
God destroyed the beast and the false prophet. He destroyed the devil. He destroyed all God's enemies. It's a symbol of judgment that would take place at the end of the tribulation. It was a judgment that would destroy the beast, the false prophet, Satan, and every enemy of God, whether it be spiritual enemies, the stars fall from heaven, Matthew 24, or the physical enemies, the men who are attacking God wouldn't believe in Him. It was all destroyed in the national judgment. That's my take on the second on the second death on the lake of fire. None of these things people are talking about what we today consider as hell. And so when you have a Bible that translates terms like Sheol, Hades, Gehenna, or Tartarus into some kind of eternal conscious torment, that is a perversion of the word of God. It's not a translation, it's a perversion. Because the insertion of the word hell into any Bible verse only serves to misread the re- mislead the reader. Because everybody knows what hell is. Saved, unsaved, we all know what hell is. Or think we know, right? And as with other pagan concepts, hell has to be predetermined prior to coming to the Scriptures because you're not going to dig it out of the Scriptures. So this concept of eternal fire, torment, hell, is eisegesis. It's something you take and you put into the Word of God. But what we want to focus on is exegesis. We want to take the Scripture and pull out what's in there. And you're not going to pull this out because it's not there. There's no evidence to support the idea of a place of eternal conscious torment. Now, if you're a firm believer in hell, I'm sorry to disappoint you. You know, when you die, you perish. Now, we got all kinds of arguments about this. Well, people, you, how are people going to get saved if they're not afraid of hell? That's not how people get saved, people. Okay? You don't scare people into heaven. Okay? Sorry. Now, I did as a youth pastor. I did it plenty of times as a youth pastor. All right? You show movies about, you know, the Great Tribulation, you know, and boy, kids, every kid in the place would come forward and want to get saved. And I'm like, wait, I don't think you understand. Go back and sit down. Got them all go back and sit down, talk to them all again for 10 more minutes. Okay, now if you want to get saved, they all ran back up there. You know, and the parents got called the next day. Why are you scaring my kid to death? I tried not to, okay? But, you know, people, that's not how people get saved. They don't, you know, just scare them into heaven, okay? They get saved by grace through faith because God has given them eternal life and brought them into the family of God. <sighs> this phone is <laughs> Let's pray. <laughs> Wait, one more thing before we close. As always... I'm not asking you to accept this. I'm not asking you, please don't reject this. What I'm asking you to do is study this. Be a Berean, search the scriptures, see if what I'm saying is so. If I'm not, if it's not right, correct me. Don't believe it, okay? I already told you during this message I've said wrong things, okay? (laughs) So study it out and figure it out for yourself. Be a Berean. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your incredible love for us, Lord. Thank you for your grace in our lives. Lord, I thank you for the truth of Scripture. Father, it's just hard to understand, looking at the Scripture, how hell got in there. It's an invention of man, Father. And it's used by the church to manipulate people. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive us. Help us to preach the the amazing grace of God. That the people would understand who you are and your love for us, Lord. Thank you for the truth of your word, Father. Amen. 
I take it from all the noises. <laughs> now, these are people texting questions. <laughs> well, here's what I don't get. Like I said, the, my volume is turned all the way off. My do not disturb is turned all the way off. When my do not disturb is on, I don't get, normally, I don't get anything. Yeah, but I've never had a problem ever before. No, it's not a new phone. I know when I when I that's the same way when I when I put on Do Not Disturb because it goes on Do Not Disturb every night and I don't hear a thing, but somehow people are breaking through. Okay, um, Matt asks, what happens to non-Jews and non-Israelites who die outside of Christ or in sin? And then he says, I think, I think you answered it after I sent this. Also, I think eternal punishment in Matthew 25 could be understood as a punishment on Jerusalem that would never be revoked, eternal, exactly, as Jude states about Sodom. Sodom was destroyed by fire and its destruction was never revoked. Yeah, see, Matt got his question in before I got it answered. That's okay, Matt. Appreciate it. Gary from PA says... Good morning, David, brethren. We appreciate your labor and light of bearing, and your light bearing teaching. My, <laughs> my wife and I were engaged on this day 37 years ago. My question is: We're referring to Gehenna as Israel's national judgment, which I agree. Is there anything else referring to the meaning behind their worm? Uh, no. Again, it's just it's it's apocalyptic symbolic language of destruction, worms feeding on, destroying. It comes from Isaiah, and again, if you look at that passage in Isaiah 66, he's talking about what's going to happen to Jerusalem. And then he says, P.S., doesn't Jude 1-12 through speak of the second death, spiritual death? I'm not, I can't remember offhand if Jude does speak of it, but again, we dealt with second death, so maybe that question came in before that came up too. Falsters here, thank you for coming up for owning up to your mistake. And I don't really don't have a problem doing that. When I'm wrong, I, you know, especially, you know, what am I going to do? It was a stupid error, but I didn't try to do it. Okay. I mean, I, I really thought, I thought, wow, what is wrong with Hank Hanegraaff? He is out of his mind. And no, I was out of my mind. <laughs> is there a translation represents this concept of hell, second death properly? Yeah, Young's. It's not there. Okay. Youngs. Everybody else, it seems to want to throw the word hell in there. And again, they're, they're getting that from Gehenna, and it doesn't, it's not a translation. Okay? What did you mean when you said everything was destroyed, including the stars? Well, you have to go back to Matthew 25. I'm not sure what verse it is, around 27, somewhere like that. The stars are going to fall from heaven. You know, all this destruction, cosmic destruction. The stars there represent deities. Okay, go into great length, go into Matthew. You know, look up the stars will fall from heaven, Matthew 24. Got a whole message on it. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about the destruction of deities at AD 70. It's not just some little local event, okay, 
There was a battle between heaven and earth. They were in a spiritual battle. Those spiritual entities were destroyed at that time. Wiped out. Battle's over. That's March 19th. Um, This is from Rick. Rick says, Would it be correct to say hell was and is created on earth by man for worship, which then God uses for judgment? Would it be correct to say that hell was and is created on earth by man? It was created by man. Okay? I don't know about for worship. I think, I think hell was more of an invention to control people. See, the church, Catholic church especially, but it's no church is really free from that. They use things to try to scare people. And if you don't do this, this is what happens. You know, and they want to keep people under the power so they can control them. Purgatory is a good example of, you know, the Catholic Church. They made a lot of money off of purgatory. A lot of money, okay? And that's one of the things that Luther was fighting against in the Reformation, you know? Because he was teaching these indulgences. This is ridiculous. You know, the Catholic Church said, you give your money, guess what? Your, your friend died, your relative died. They're in purgatory. They're suffering. But if you give money, you can shorten the time of their suffering. Oh, good. How do I know when they get out? Well, you don't. Just keep giving. Perfect scenario. You, you love your rel- relative, right? You want to get their time shortened in purgatory? And the Catholic Church, everybody goes to purgatory. Okay, everybody. It's a money-making scheme, people. And it worked. I mean, but Luther, that's, Luther had a fit about it. He said, man, this is, this is some sick stuff. And it is. But there's so much the church does today is the same thing. Again, scaring people, trying to scare people into heaven. It doesn't work. What version of the Bible do I need? I have the New King James Version. Linda from West Virginia. Linda, ESV is a really good translation. The uh, <laughs> the yeah the extra special version. The English it's the English Standard Version. I like the English Standard Version. It's not perfect. There is not a translation out there that is perfect. So I recommend using, first of all, Young's with everything you do because it's a literal translation. The only thing I don't like about Young's is they use the word Jehovah, Jehovah in there. Jehovah's not, that's not even a word, all right, which blows my mind. It's literal, but he made up a word, okay, that's not there. So other than that, Young's is a good translation. Use Young's with whatever, but use several translations and look things up in different translations. I like the Christian Standard Bible. They do a really good job in some places. To me, the Christian Standard Bible and the ESV, those two together do a really good job of giving you a really accurate picture on what the Bible is trying to say. From Norm, it's so much more fearful to not exist anymore and not knowing you ever did. It's severe but just. Even in this, there's mercy. Thank you and well done. This is a, trage- this is a tragedy of refusing Christ. This is the tragedy of refusing Christ. Right, you're done, you're gone, you're, you know, and again, you know, this idea of, and you talk to people about hell, and then you got to narrow down, is this a literal place? Like, people, well, it's in the earth somewhere, you know, because people think the earth is a globe, and there's a core of fire, and that's hell. Well, I got news for you, it's not a globe to start with, so you're in the wrong place there, all right? But, you know, it's not a literal place, and then so, do you have, do you get a new body, an asbestos body that won't burn up? Because it has to just keep on burning for eternity. And so you're just screaming forever and ever. I I don't know. It just, 
There's too many questions there. The whole doctrine, like I said, it's just a mess. But if death was thrown into the lake of fire, why do unbelievers today still die? Because the death there is referring to the spiritual death, not physical death. Physical death is not over, okay? And what's way more important is spiritual death than physical death, okay? If you die physically apart from the Lord, you die, you're, you're gone, okay? That's the end of it. But spiritual death is the death that was destroyed. In other words, if you're a believer, once you receive spiritual life, nothing. There's no death for you. There's no death in the kingdom of God. Believers cannot spiritually die. We'll talk about this next week. Resurrection Sunday. We're going to talk about resurrection. We're going to talk about life. We're talking about death. Hmm? Yeah, that's just, uh, that's what we talk about on that day. Resurrection Sunday. Alright, uh, just to clarify, lake of fire as the final judgment, just as in Isaiah, just a more descriptive term, yes, I think lake of fire is the same as Gehenna, it's symbolic of Gehenna. Again, we're reading in a highly symbolic book, this is not a real lake, not a fire, it pictures total destruction. The devil's in there, the false prophet and beast are in there, they're in there forever, in other words, they're done, they're gone, they're never coming back. Thank you, David, for your dedication and ability to express difficult subjects. Press the menu under the volume slider that comes up when you press your volume down. Alert should be, they, they, there shouldn't be alert. Every Sunday I hit, do not disturb. And I don't get disturbed. Today, it's muted. I'm gonna, yeah. You know what? I unmuted it. I unnot disturbed it. <sighs> okay, it's, no, it's, it's operator, operator error. <laughs> okay, yes. Sorry, phone. You did. You're doing good. <laughs> Who is those whose names are not found in the book of life? It is unbelievers. It is the non-elect. God wrote a book from eternity. Your name is in it. If you're a Christian, it's always been written in it, and your name will never be blotted out. God has a people always had a people that would be his. People go crazy over election. Listen, God is God. He can do whatever he wants to. People say, well, that's not fair. (laughs) What's fair is that God doesn't save anybody. That's fair. I don't want that. But God chose to give a love gift to his son for his son's sacrifice on the cross. See, the way most people believe it, Christ could have died on the cross and nobody got saved. Everybody says, nah, not interested. He could have died totally in vain. But no, the Bible makes it really clear that God, the the elect, are a love gift that he promised to his son for his sacrifice. It's an amazing concept. Now, I, I know if you're not an elect, it's not so good. You might not like it, but I don't have any control over that, okay? It's just what the Bible says. Right, exactly. Right. No one would have come because that's what the scriptures say. No one can come to me, John 6, 44, unless nobody, nobody comes, nobody believes unless, okay? There is a new Young's version called the Yahweh edition. Jehovah is removed. Did you know that, David? I didn't know that. That's news to me. Well, thank you. I I appreciate that. Hey, they fixed it. Hallelujah. I got to check this out. I got to check this out. Huh? Yes, it says it's called the Yahweh edition. 
Jehovah's removed. So I would, I, no, I'm assuming. <laughs> yeah, David, David wrote his own version. He put, took that out. <laughs> yeah. But as translations go, <laughs> it's still a pretty good one. Great teaching, Mr. Curtis, about worms. Job said in chapter 7, 5, my flesh is clothed with worms and clods of dust. It was figurative language, okay? Really, you know, Job was in a very bad, miserable state. We use exaggerated language like that all the time, okay? It's, you know, I don't think worms were actually eating Job. Oh, they could have been. You know, he was in a bad state, there's no doubt. John says, Pastor Dave, knowing what most of what is known as church teaches, could you share your thoughts on 1 Timothy 3.15, the church is the pillar and foundation of the truth. Did that just apply to the first generation of church? Thank you very much, John. No, no, John, I don't think that. I think that that is an eternal, I think that is the purpose of the church. The church is to be the pillar and ground of the truth. In other words, pillar had that idea of display. Okay, the ground is the foundation. We're to be the foundation. We're to be displaying the truth. That is the church's whole job to proclaim truth. Now, today the job has been switched around. Today the new job is to see how many people you can get into a building. That's the primary focus and purpose of the church. Get people in. And when I was a youth pastor, they had this big day every year. You know, Baptist church's big day. How many people can you have? You have a big day right before the convention. So when you get to the convention, you can tell how many people you had in church, and it's like, wow, we had this many. I'm like, it's such a mind game, it isn't funny. But he, a pastor would come to me, I was a youth pastor, he said, how many people can you have? I said, how much money you got? How much money you want to give me? Give me a budget, I'll get all the kids you want. I brought 200 kids in. 200 kids in. Because I had pizza, I had movies, I had, ah, man, I had everything. Okay? And so that place was packed. So guess what? They got to say it the next week. Well, you had this many people in church that we didn't see any of those kids again. I mean, they, they heard the gospel that Sunday, but, you know, for most of them, that was, that was the end of it. They were gone after that. But it's just, you know, it's a sad, it's a sad situation the church is in now. It really is. I mean, they just, I don't know, the truth has become secondary. Uh, someone, I don't even know who this is from, oh, Linda, she says, do we all stand before God upon our last breath? We'll be in heaven before God, on our believers, on our last breath. You know, there is no condemnation of those in Christ. There's no judgment. The Bible talks about the Bema seat. The Bema seat's a reward platform. And here's your reward. You did a good job down there, okay? The non-believers, I don't know, Daniel talks about the resurrection, just and unjust. I think that happened, though, in AD 70. I think from here on, my understanding is you die, you're gone perish such a blessing today thank you the obviousness of the text begins to jump off the page once my presuppositions are set aside this brings peace to my soul the idea of eternal torment is seemingly at odds to the god found in scripture Corey. well thanks Corey. and see some people argue that against you know hell well it's it's not like god i'm like i, I don't know god can judge you know we read a passage today when God told them, you know, go the Israelites go in there, kill the women, kill the children, kill the babies, kill everybody, okay, because of their sin. God can, God can judge people because of sin. I don't think it would be wrong for God to do that. I just don't think it teaches that, you know. Why pray for unsaved people? So they'll get saved. 
That's why you pray for unsaved people. Okay, yeah, that, that exactly. I mean, the Bible tells us to do that, okay? And so that makes sense. If you want them to get saved, then you will pray for them, you know? Pray that God would open their mind. Pray, you know, can we pray that they're elect? Well, they either are or they aren't, but we don't know that, okay? And so we pray. We ask God to, you know, because we don't know, is this person elect? Well, they heard the gospel and they rejected it. Then, 10 years from now, maybe they'll accept it. You don't know that. You know, we don't know. So we pray for people we care about. We ask God to work in their lives. Yes. <laughs> and that's why we pray, because it is up to God. If it was like most people believe, what's well, just up to you? Why pray for them? Why ask God to do something that's up that person's job to do? You know? I heard an evangelist one time say, people came to the altar and he said, no sense in praying for these people anymore. It's out of God's hands now. It's up to them. And I'm like, then they're damned. <laughs> okay? They are damned. If it's up to them, it is, they're in trouble. Sad, sad place to be. Big, big trouble. The Gary Cole says the Yahweh edition is available on Amazon and Christian Book Distributor. Thanks, thanks, Gary. That that's cool. I'm gonna have to get that. Um, hopefully, hopefully I can get the electronic version because this is my Bible, so I want to get it on here. <laughs> uh, Doug, Doug from Richmond says. You're like a holy jukebox. Select your song and the music is as great as the last time. Play on, brother. <laughs> You're mine, Doug. I don't know how it works, but it's uh, you are very imaginative. Okay, I think I think we're done. My phone stopped beeping. 